0: Father in heaven, um, we lift up to you the nations. We lift up to you the work you are doing among the nations. We uh, are thankful that you have not left us without a witness. You have not left us without a light. You have not left us without a testimony. But you have brought to our hearts the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, for all of those places where that light has yet to go out, or where that light has been snuffed out, that you would rekindle those flames, that your gospel might burst forth into new hope and to new life in you. And Father, we pray uh, for the way that the nations come to us. I pray, Father, for Pastor Amer, of Cincinnati Arabic Church, and we pray, Father, that his ministry to uh, Arabs, uh, Arabic-speaking and Muslim communities in the Cincinnati area would flourish for the sake of Jesus' name, that many would come to know the name of Jesus, many who come to the United States for study or for a better life who might not have the opportunity to hear the good news, whether in Saudi Arabia or in Yemen or Kuwait or Iraq or Iran, where it might be shut down, might be silenced, but your word cannot be silenced. And so you bring the nations to Cincinnati to hear your good news. We pray, Father, for his work this year to uh, see churches started in Columbus, and Cleveland, to... Uh, Bring the good news to those who speak Arabic. Would you bring many to know your name through those churches? We pray for the Sudakar of uh, Russia, Father. We pray that uh, they would come to know the hope of the gospel. We pray, Father, that you would begin a gospel movement there. If there be any who call on your name among the Sudakar, that you would encourage them. To be bold in their witness to their friends and their families and their neighbors. To make known the name of Jesus. And we pray that you would raise up laborers to go into that harvest field. We believe that even among that people, there are those who are ready to come to know you. So would you send messengers, would you send preachers that they might hear and that they might believe and that they might be saved to everlasting life, that they might abandon the hopelessness of Islam and the treachery of a weak and impotent God for the hope and power in Jesus' name. Father, we pray that as we turn our attention to your word that we would hear, that we would truly have, as Jesus said, ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, that we would respond in obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, turn to me uh, with me to Revelation chapter 2. There should be Bibles uh, underneath the seats if you don't have one. And Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible. Revelation is the last one. There's also a table of contents on the inside flap of the Bible if you need help getting there. Um, Revelation, again, is the last book. We're going to look at the second chapter of that book. And we're going to look down at verse 8. And to the angel of the church... In Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Hey, Silas. Could you bring me a cup of water? i just realized I'm going to need it. Thanks. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What drives you to whatever's next in your life? Whatever is uh, pushing you to the next achievement, the next advancement, the next day, or just the next week? What motivates you? What are you living for? For some of us it might be a promotion, some of us it might be uh, a a family, some of us it might be just seeing our kids be better than us, for some of us it might be, uh, thank you sir, Uh, for some of us it, it might be simply be recognition or love. Maybe it's more cynical, maybe it's power or money. But ask yourself, is that thing that motivates you, is it enough? Is it enough to keep you going in the worst of circumstances? If you had that one thing, if you achieved that one thing, and you got all of it that you thought you needed, would that satisfy you in the worst of all circumstances. This passage this morning is an interesting one because of these seven letters that are being written to these seven churches in Asia, meaning here the western end of ancient Turkey, this is Unique in that most of the letters have some mixture of good things and bad things to say to the churches. But in this message to the church in Smyrna, there's nothing negative to say. And yet they're about to undergo something that is going to test what they are living for and whether it is Enough, And I think that in the sum of it, the question is whether or not what we live for can sustain us through death itself. We're going to break this up much the way we broke up the uh, passage last week, Jesus is identified, uh, Jesus knows, Jesus warns, and Jesus encourages. So that's going to be our outline. It's very similar to last week, and if you weren't here last week or the week before, we're just in a short series on the book of Revelation, a short series that's going to last us all year, um, and the book begins with uh, the Apostle John. He's in exile on the island of Patmos off Greek, uh, Gulf Greece, uh, Turkey. And he, is, he sees this vision of Jesus, and Jesus has a message for these churches that are in that corner of the world in the first century. And each of these messages to these seven churches begins with Jesus introducing himself by one of the pictures of him in chapter 1. Remember, in chapter 1, John sees this vision of Jesus, but it's not the Jesus that John knew when John was alive. It's It's the same person, but physically the descriptions of him are beyond belief because it's not baby Jesus in the cradle, and it's not Jesus hanging on the cross. It's Jesus resurrected from the dead, risen to the right hand of the Father, reigning eternally with all of time and space and authority in his hand. And there's all these different pictures and descriptions of them in chapter 1. And like we have said, those pictures come up to each one of the churches. To each one of those churches, a different one of those descriptions is kind of brought forward as particularly appropriate to the circumstances that that church is facing. And that's what we have here. We have the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So that goes back to chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus describes himself as the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. We talked about that a little bit in rapid fire, because there's a lot of descriptions, and we said we're going to hit them in more detail as we go through these letters, and so that's what we're going to do. And on the surface, this seems like two or three different descriptions of Jesus, depending on how you uh, organize these thoughts. He's first and last, uh, and that sounds like one thing. That sounds like one description. Uh, and living one, the living one, that seems like a second description. And died but alive, that sounds like it could almost be a third description of Jesus. But the fact that Jesus doesn't spread these descriptions out to two or three churches but gives them all to one suggests that he's thinking about these things as one thing, one idea. So how do these come together? What is the bigger picture? And that, that bigger picture is revealed to us if we know our Bibles. Three times in the prophet Isaiah of the Old Testament, who lived in the 700 B.C. time frame, between 800 and 700 B.C., Three times in his book that's in the Old Testament, in chapter 41, chapter 44, chapter 48, of the book of Isaiah, the idea of the first and last comes up. Much of the book of Isaiah is written in the shadow of the height of the Assyrian Empire in the east, which is leveling peoples, leveling nations, subjugating Kingdoms across the Near East. And at its height, it controlled nearly the entire region that we call the Fertile Crescent. So it's reaching down from the Persian Gulf near Kuwait and the, moving up through the Tigris and Euphrates floodplain into the regions that we know as, as Baghdad and Mosul in the north, turning towards Syria, and then south toward what we know as Lebanon, and Israel, and uh, Palestine. And so from Israel's perspective, Assyria was a power in the east that attacked them from the north. And in Isaiah 41, God rhetorically asks the people who live on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, the furthest west that Assyria could easily spread, who stirred up the one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. And after further describing the conquests of the Assyrian Empire, God answers the question of who does that. He says, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. God is the one who stirred up the Assyrian Empire and gave it space. To conquer. In Isaiah 44, God speaks to Israel directly and and tells of a time when despite Israel's unfaithfulness, there will once again be faithful worshipers of him instead of the false gods and idols that they had begun to worship. And then God sort of taunts these false gods. He taunts the idols. He makes fun of them. He challenges them, whether any of them are like him at all or whether they even exist at all. And God says, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then finally, in chapter 48, God pleads with the Israelites to turn to him, to follow him, and he makes his case to them that he is the one who has done them good. He is the one who has brought them to the point of disaster because of their unfaithfulness, and he, he alone is the only hope that they have. He created the universe, and he orders it for his glory. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. And so in a plea to the nations abroad, in a taunt of these false gods, and in a plea to the nation of Israel, Yahweh, Jehovah, God, insists that he alone is the first and the last. And these passages point to the fact that God is unique among all of the beings that might claim to be God. He is unique among all of existence for that matter. As the first and the last, he is saying that he existed before all things and that he will exist after all things come to an end. He is uniquely immortal, and he has always been that way. But lest there be any doubt about the identity of Jesus, this exclusive description of the one true God in the Old Testament is given to Jesus by Jesus in the book of Revelation. He is the great Jehovah. The one who existed before all things and who will exist after all things. In fact, that syncs with what John himself writes at the beginning of the gospel of John, his account of Jesus' life and teaching. The very beginning of that book reads this way. In the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, the message, the communication. In the beginning was the word, and the word was With God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, Jesus is God over all, forever blessed. Amen. So then what's his connection to him being the one who was a dead, uh, uh, but now he is alive, resurrected from the dead? Well, it's not exactly that he couldn't die. That, That wouldn't be what he's saying, because he did die. His humanity died, but not his deity, not his godness. But his deity was linked to his humanity in such a way that he couldn't stay dead. The mortal flesh and blood of Jesus was swallowed up by the immortality he had as God. Back in Revelation 1, Jesus is described as the firstborn from the dead. We even sang that and read that this morning uh, from Colossians. And, And that is because... He's, he's known as the firstborn of the dead because if we are his followers, then we will, in a similar way, have our flesh and blood transformed by Jesus' immortal power. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on the immortality so Jesus wants the church in Smyrna particularly to see him as the eternal God who overcame death And that's a picture for us as much as for them it's for all Christians but he singles out this picture specifically for Smyrna why To answer that, we need to turn to sort of the second point here, which is what does Jesus know about these Christians? The fact that Jesus knows, we said last week, is a great comfort for us who follow him. Those of us who are weary, those of us who are worn down by the trials of this life, for the toils of Sin and evil in this world because it means that Jesus is not aloof, he's not far away. And throughout the Bible, when God knows something, it's usually a bit figurative language, meaning he's about to act, it's a prelude to God acting. Jesus knows them, the Christians in Smyrna. Jesus knows us. He has his heart on us. And he's going to act on our behalf. But what specifically is going on with Smyrna that Jesus knows? Well, he knows their tribulation, he knows their poverty, and he knows their slander. Tribulation just means difficulty or distress. Sometimes it can mean pain caused by others, but often it's just pain from an impersonal force, like a a famine. But here it's tied very closely to the idea of poverty. Probably some outside force is causing both the tribulation and the poverty, and the poverty obviously is going to make whatever trial they are dealing with worse. The Greeks had many words for poverty, but this word often had the sense of needing to rely on others for even basic survival. And so it could very well be that these Christians already have their lives very much in the balance because of their poverty. Probably we're supposed to understand that their tribulation and their poverty are connected, at least somewhat, to the slander they are enduring. That slander comes from, the text says, those who say they are Jews and are not but a synagogue of Satan. Slander is often painful, often humiliating, but we might wonder, how does slander cause poverty? Well, we actually have some historical information that sheds some light on that. We know here from this text that this slander is coming from the Jewish community in Smyrna. And if you're not familiar with the scope of Scripture, John's language might sound harsh to you, it might sound unkind to you, maybe even prejudicial. But if you know the teachings of the Old Testament and the the prophets and John the Baptist and Jesus and John and Paul, what he says here makes a lot of sense, and it's a very important idea for us to grasp a hold of. See, the early Christians saw themselves as Jews. That was easy at the beginning. They were all Jewish men and women. They were born in Jewish homes They were raised in a Jewish culture. They were living in a land filled with Jewish thought. They didn't see themselves as creating a new religion. Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen king of God who had long been promised to the Jewish people. And so Jesus was Judaism. And so the first Christians were simply living out Judaism in the age of of a Messiah. That's a very big change because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's a fulfillment of all the promises that were made to Israel. And so it's a radical shift, but it is part of a a stream of thought from Genesis on. And from their vantage point, to, to ignore or to reject God's promised Messiah, the descendant of David, King of kings, Lord of lords, Who was God Himself? Well, to do that would be to apostatize, would be to leave the faith. It's a rejection of God Himself. A person could no longer or no more be a Jew who rejected the Messiah than be a Jew who rejected Moses. That was their perspective on things, that's how they're looking at things. And moreover, the consistent teaching of Scripture from the Old Testament on, is that one was not a Jew simply by being born a Jew. We have ingrained in our brains that Jewishness is a sort of an ethnic group and a religious group. But over and over in the Old Testament, there are Israelites, descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who are rejected by God because they rejected him. And John the Baptist warns the Jewish people to turn from their sins because it's not enough to simply rest on the fact that they had descended from Abraham. As Paul put it in Romans 2, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So in the same way that the early Christians came to believe that God was bringing the Gentiles, incorporating the non-Jewish people by birth into this new Jewish community. Circumcision was a sign of Jewishness, a sign of the covenant that God made with Israel. But Paul used the language of the Jewish prophets to describe a work that God does on the heart rather than a work man does on the flesh. That that is the definitive sign of belonging to God. What God does on the heart is the definitive sign of belonging to him, being part of his people. And that God, or that work of God, is ultimately the faith that he works in his people by his spirit. And so in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul can write, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So those who have true faith in God, including faith in his Messiah, Jesus Christ, those are the true Jews. Just like Rahab, a Canaanite woman, probably a prostitute, who placed her faith in the God of Israel and joined the Jewish people. Just like Ruth, a, a woman from Moab, who professed faith in Yahweh and joined the Jewish people. Both of these extraordinary women became ancestors of King David and, and of Jesus himself, even though they were not biologically descendants of Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, and yet they are considered Jewish. So in the early days of the Christian movement, you see the Christians often trying to continue to meet in the synagogue, speak about Jesus with their fellow ethnic Jews, but, but they encounter more and more hostility as time goes on. Often they're being thrown out of the synagogues, and, and by the time the book of Revelation is written, probably more than 60 years after Jesus had been crucified and raised to life, it doesn't seem like there's much overlap between the Christian community and the Jewish synagogues. And that was a problem for Christians. Because the Roman Empire generally... Genu- generally I can speak, generally uh, expected the people of their empire to follow the religion of Rome, to worship the Roman gods, including sometimes recognizing Caesar, the king himself, as something of a god. And they were okay with the Babylonians and the Egyptians who they conquered because, you know, Your sun god, our sun god, your wind god, our wind god, they're basically the same thing. You're just calling them by a different name. That was sort of the Roman perspective. That was fine. But anything outside of that was generally a problem for them. But they had learned over time that it was better to make exceptions for the Jewish people. That if they tried to force these people who worshipped one god to worship their many, many, many gods those people tended to get upset. And it was easier for them to sort of turn the other way when it came to the Jewish people. And so Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. Had a bit of a special status. And so if Christians were seen as a sect of Judaism, like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, then they would have religious freedom. They would uh, have permission to worship as they saw fit. But if the Christians were seen as having a new religion, well, that could lead Rome to trying to force them to become Roman. And that's not a good thing. And even in the pages of Scripture, the book of Acts and, and the Gospels, we see slander against Christians in the early days. At times, Jewish groups accused the Christians of, of worshiping a different king than Caesar. They say they believe in Jesus, who is a king, and that makes them enemies of King Caesar. And that's not exactly a true statement. It's one of those statements that has a nugget of truth, but it's been twisted and manipulated to cause trouble for the Christian community. In fact, a similar accusation was made against Jesus himself that led to the Roman authorities allowing him to be crucified. And so by rejecting God's one and only Son, these individuals showed that they weren't really Jews, not inwardly at least, not in their hearts, because their hearts had not been transformed by the Spirit to believe in the Lord and Messiah Jesus Christ. A synagogue of Satan might still sound harsh, but it's fitting. As Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so there's only two sides to this. There are not many paths to the Father. There is one path to the Father. Either you follow Jesus, or you will be lost. Either you follow The Christ, or you are just playing a variation on a theme. That theme being the rejection of God and his Messiah. It goes a little bit deeper than that, though. Satan does become a personal name in Scripture. But the Hebrew word Satan, Satan, means accuser. And that's exactly what, this is ha- what they are doing in this passage. In slandering the Christians of Smyrna, they are making false accusations against them to harm them. They were becoming a congregation of accusation, a synagogue of Satan. There's a lot into that, but if you really work it out, you will hopefully get the idea that the ancients did not think in our modern categories of grouping people, and you'll get the striking idea that what makes God's people God's people, what makes Israel Israel, what makes Jews Jews is far more complex than biology. But it's also far simpler. A Jew is one inwardly by the spirit, not by the letter, and those who are of faith are the son's Of Abraham. So, what are the poverty? Well, poverty was pretty common in the Roman Empire. But if some of these Christians were dependent on the social programs of the local Jewish synagogue, which was very common, especially for elderly Jews and then they were cast out of the synagogues because they believed in Jesus Christ, that would have put them in a very, very precarious position. And for the small, likely very small, Christian community at the time, it could have been an enormous financial burden. It's also possible that rumors of disloyalty to the Roman gods Rumors of disloyalty to Caesar would have limited the Christians' access to the marketplace, like the the guilds that were allowed to operate and do business. And if you can't sell and buy your goods and wares, you are going to quickly run out of funds. But whatever the reason for their poverty, Jesus wants to remind them that it's actually an illusion. Because he says, in actuality, they seem poor, but they're rich. In what way would Jesus possibly say that they are rich? Well, no doubt their riches were the riches of Christ's grace that were lavished on them because of their salvation. We, if we are followers of Jesus, like they, were rescued from God's judgment on our sins, our rebellions, our crimes. And we're rescued from them on the basis of the free gift of God. On the cross, Jesus paid the infinite cost Of our debt, so that those who place their faith in Him can go free. That is true riches, infinite riches. But there's another place in Scripture where trials, tribulation, poverty, riches all come together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul encourages the Christians who were living in the city of Corinth to donate money in support of their fellow Christians living in Jerusalem who were experiencing a famine. And to encourage these Christians living in Corinth, he points to the example of Christians that had been living in Macedonia. And Paul writes about them, that in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme Poverty welled up in rich generosity. That word trial is the same word as tribulation, uh, as translated in Revelation 2. And so the Macedonians were facing tribulation and poverty. But they were considered rich because of their generosity. Their richness was not just in the grace of Jesus lavished on them, but also in the generosity of their hearts that was produced by the lavish grace of Jesus. And it makes me wonder if Jesus isn't thinking the same thing about the Christians in Smyrna, that despite their painful condition, they are rich in sacrificial love for their fellow Christians. How often is it true that those who have the least Material things are better able to assess just how well off they are. And so they give and they live generously. We praise millionaires and billionaires for gifts of a few thousand dollars, which is an inconsequential fraction of their wealth but there are millions of unsung heroes that give large percentages of their wealth away for the sake of Jesus. Jesus knew the riches of the church in Smyrna. Does he know ours? Those riches are going to be tried, though. That's Jesus' warning to them. And this is a little different than last week. Last week when we looked at the church of Ephesus, there was a warning, but that warning came in the form of a rebuke. This warning, though, is not a rebuke. Jesus has nothing bad to say about the Christians living in Smyrna. So if Jesus has nothing bad to say about them, of course, everything is going to go completely right in their lives, right? That's what the guy on TV says. No, that's not what Jesus says, though. Jesus has a warning to prepare them for spiritual warfare they're about to endure. And so Jesus says, I'll read again, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. They're already in tribulation. But Jesus promises them ten days Days of tribulation on what on top of what they are presently enduring. So what else can you call that besides suffering? The good news is it's only 10 days. It's time limited. The bad news is it will involve imprisonment. They did not have run-of-the-mill prisons and holding cells in ancient Rome. So if Rome was going to imprison a person, there's a good chance the imprisonment was a prelude to execution. And the fact that Jesus urges them to be faithful unto death would suggest that that's very much on the radar. And so this is a terrifying situation for these Christians living in ancient Smyrna. But they didn't need to fear. In fact, they are commanded by the God who holds all of time and all of space and all eternity to specifically not fear. The Christians in Smyrna did not need to fear imprisonment and death, but not because it wasn't going to happen. No, instead, they had no reason to fear In spite of the fact that that was what was going to happen, the worst of all possible circumstances was going to happen, and they did not need to fear. So, what do you fear? Poverty? A loss of loved ones? A lack of recognition? A lack of significance? Clowns? It's a thing, apparently. Death? Why do you fear these things? The Smyrna Christians did not need to fear anything because they knew the one who held history, or maybe better, the one who holds all history knows them. The one who knew this persecution was going to be intense, but it was time limited. The one who had already died for them to make them spiritually rich. What concern is this life if you've already died to this life? Too many of us are living in fear. Fear of what has been, fear of what is, fear of what might be. Even sometimes, once in a while, we are afraid of what we know will happen. But if your only hope is in this life, then you probably do have good reasons to be afraid. But if you are a Christian, what sense is there in fear? I asked at the top what it was that you were passionate about, what you're living for, what drives you to get up and do more today, what, do more tomorrow, do more next week. And my question to you is, is it enough if the worst happens? These Christians living in Smyrna are already facing persecution. They are already uh, impoverished. They are already undergoing great trials. And on top of that, many of them are going to be thrown into prison and as a result, likely executed. If that was your lot, if everything was taken away, the worst literally happened is what drives you this morning, tomorrow morning, next month, next year. Is that enough to get you through. Is that enough for you? Or would you be afraid? Now I wanna be clear that the the Christian life is not one of throwing caution to the wind and doing whatever we want because there's no consequences. We don't play Russian roulette because we have no fear. We, We don't gamble because we have no fear. We don't act irresponsibly because we have no fear. Instead, we live wisely and prudently and righteously precisely because we have no fear. So you're not going to go look out on Instagram and, and see someone who got rich quick and fear that you're going to be left out. If you don't fear missing out on worldly riches, then you will engage in wise stewardship of the resources that you do have, and there's a good chance that works out for you. You won't look out on the block and and, and see people getting promotions and fancy titles and moving into better neighborhoods and think you're losing prestige. Prestige. Because you don't need to fear losing prestige if you're satisfied with the recognition of heaven and the one who says, well done, good and faithful servant. You'll see reports of people who die early, who die of this disease, die of that disease, die of that strange twist of fate maybe. And, and some people will be tempted to scramble to prevent death. They, they, they'll ingest all sorts of cocktails of supplements and, and fitness regimes and uh, almost baby-proof their house to make sure that nothing can go wrong. And even if it does go wrong, I've got insurance on top of my insurance on top of my insurance. And yet never know the peace of the one who knows that this is just a temporary passing stage but the one who has no fear has peace. These Christians in Smyrna were about to face the worst, but Jesus encourages them, you don't need to fear, because you know me, and I know you. And that is enough. And Jesus offers this encouragement He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus' encouragement, his promise to the church in Smyrna is particularly fitting for their circumstances. See, there is actually a fate worse than death. It's what the book of Revelation calls the second death. It's the death we face after judgment with God, and we're consigned to an eternity apart from him, because we have rejected him. Now, we might think we like that, but God calls that a second death. It's a spiritual death. It's an eternal death that will imprison us forever. But those who endure to the end will be saved. These were the words of Jesus. If we persevere in faith... We don't lose our confidence, but we hold fast to the one that we know holds all of eternity. If we hold fast to the one who was dead, but behold, is alive, then we don't need to fear the second death. Even as death could not hold Jesus, those who trust in him know that death will not ultimately hold us. But he promises to raise us to new life in him. We will escape the judgment of God, not because we are righteous, not because we're so good, but because we trusted the one who is righteous, who is good, whose goodness is counted on us our accounts. Jesus says to that person, he will give the crown of life. The crown would probably be a a victor's crown, a wreath of conquering. If you think about the old, maybe Olympic Games, and, and the winner of the ancient Olympic Games might receive a wreath, a crown symbolizing their victory. For Jesus, this life is a contest to see who will, in many ways, be faithful to the end. Every four years, we can turn on the Olympics and we can watch this event or that event where a competitor simply does not finish. It's not about winning or losing But getting to the end, there are runners who trip and stumble and don't make the finish line. There are marathon sprinters who run out of breath. There are people who get injured. There are people who have to call off the games. There are people who simply don't make it to the end. Jesus doesn't tell us that we have to win the battle. The victory is in finishing that we hold the faith that we started with through the worst of the worst. When we receive a crown of victory and those who receive that crown of victory will not be touched by this second death. So much of the New Testament is written In these letters and books, you think of Revelation, think of Hebrews, think of um, even to some degree the 1st and 2nd Timothy and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are written to Christians who are enduring 1st Peter, enduring persecution. They're enduring hardships. They're enduring difficulties that make them want to throw in the towel and say, I give up. I don't see an end in this. And So Jesus comes and he encourages them, stay strong, stay faithful. Don't let go of me. I'm not letting go of you. It's going to be bad. Your faith is going to be tried. It's going to be tested. The devil is up to some awful evil, but I'm in control. I have his leash. Stay faithful to the end. And you'll receive a crown of life. Not a crown of riches, not a crown of splendor, a crown of spiritual life. And the immortality. Of Jesus, who is the first and the last, who was before all things and will be there at the end, will transform us too into what He is. That is a hope that can survive the greatest trials of this life. That is a meaning. And a purpose and a significance that can get me up tomorrow, that can get me up next week, that can get me thinking about a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. That even if you take away everything else from me, but I have Jesus, I have enough. Does your hope give you that? Let's pray. Father, we we do not know if we are going to face 10 days of persecution. We do not have a word from you on the specifics of our life. But we know that many of us will face challenges in this life. Many of us will face temptations to abandon you. Many of us will potentially know those or ourselves face some rather extreme consequences for following you. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us, Father, to be faithful unto death. Give us a sober appraisal of our own hearts and our own condition so that we might know whether this is what we are living for or not. Help us to make a clean appraisal of whether Jesus is enough for us. And if we are living for the things in this world, if we are living for fame, if we are living for recognition, if we are living for wealth or career moves or family or any other thing that can be taken from us in a moment, God, would you reorient our priorities that we might be steadfastly committed to him who was the first, who is the first, and the last who died, and behold, he lives. And Father, we pray for those who maybe have yet to come to know his goodness and his graciousness to us. That they would seek to know all about him and to know him more and more. That they might find the hope of the promise of eternal life that is in him. A hope that cannot be taken away no matter what comes. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to sing to this Jesus once again.